Hello and welcome to episode number 286 of the Armin Show podcast, where we have scientists, creatives, authors, and in this case, author and attorney, Robert Billot. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Glad to have you on. You're the author of the book, Exposure. We'll get into that in a bit. You're an attorney. How did you get to become the kind of environmental attorney that you currently are? What was the progression? Well, I actually uh, started my legal career 30 years ago um, at the, the law firm I'm still at, uh, Taft, Statinius & Hollister in Cincinnati, and started off in our environmental group. Um, and back then, a lot of what I was doing was representing our corporate clients, uh, big chemical companies, of, uh, companies of that nature. And then that changed around 1998 when I got a call one day from a farmer out in West Virginia who had an issue with cows dying, which uh, led me uh, to, to develop a very uh, different practice from that point on the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. Now, why did you choose environmental law over any other type of law? Was there something in your youth that led you in that direction? You know, it was uh, when I was in law school, um, it was one of the last courses I took right before I graduated and just seemed like a really interesting area of the law to me, a lot, a lot more interesting than things like tax or, uh, you know, contracts, anything like that. It just seemed like more real world. And uh, when I graduated and joined the firm, it just so happened that they had an environmental group. Uh, so I really wasn't quite sure what all that involved, but I uh, was fortunate to be able to to join the environmental practice group and, and start learning about all that, all the different state and federal rules and regulations that existed. And that kind of started my, um, my education in, in, that, in that regard 30 years ago. This is wonderful. We only build up our skills over some decades to really get into something. Now, one thing that comes to mind is, do you have any sense of like personality qualities of yourself that lead you to becoming an, an attorney? Did you have some sort of uh, logic forming ability that you saw clearly or ability to debate or battle against others? You know, I, I'm not sure if there's really necessarily, <coughs> excuse me, any particular uh, type of personality um, or skill set that's, that's really best for being an attorney. Um, yeah, it just it was something I was originally thinking of actually being an architect. Uh, and then at some point I was thinking of being a city planner. So it was actually after college uh, that I kind of changed my mind after my dad, uh, who had retired from a career in the Air Force, actually went to law school uh, as a second, uh, second career, so to speak. And, and that really kind of got me interested in looking into that. And and I just sort of switched, uh, switched the direction at that point and uh, decided to go to law school. Commonly, from sometimes I've seen, I've known a couple, there's been a few attorneys on the show actually, and they had maybe a family member or extended family member who was also an attorney. Is that the case for yourself? Yeah, my dad, uh, who uh, you know, he graduated actually from law school about the time that I was um, in college. So. I got to see that sort of firsthand. And really, that was the only experience I had. There was only only family member uh, that was a lawyer, and you know he was working and started working for as a city prosecutor in Dayton, Ohio. And um, um, so it was really, really no idea what working with a private law firm, you know, really involved. And I kind of learned that myself firsthand. That's a nice feature. It's different to do law 
privately or for a, yes i've seen the different kinds i know a person who is in washington dc and has more of like an activist kind of interest in her law and then i know someone else who was more uh in the like tech uh, biotech kind of category of law they're completely different they're not even similar now your book was about your battle with uh, dupont and their release of chemicals publicly before i get into that how much of that is connected to what you're doing today in 2020 in relation to law uh very much so very connected um what i describe in the book exposure is really how i got involved with litigation and legal issues involving this big class of chemicals we call PFAS, per and polyfluoroalkylated substances, um, which has been abbreviated as PFAS. You may hear them also referred to as forever chemicals. These are these man-made uh, toxins that are now contaminating drinking water, air, water all over the planet and in human blood all over the planet. Um, and so really in the book, I just describe how I first got uh, involved with that, how the litigation developed, how we started to learn what these chemicals were. Um, and really, I am still today uh, working on those issues as, uh, as we've become really becoming aware of the uh, scope and extent of this contamination. It's been people are finding out it's in their water. All over, the, all over the globe, there's new litigation being brought now by states, by water providers, by communities. So uh, I'm trying still uh, to, to help those who've been impacted by these chemicals. And that's still what I'm working on today. Mm -hmm. I find it to be interesting that I could, after reading about that, go up to somebody and say, there's probably PFOA inside of you. Just a random person on the street, but it might be accurate in a funny way. Right, right. But I just saw an article a couple of days ago about DDT barrels of that being found off of Catalina Island that was probably dumped there 50, 60 years ago. And I thought this is similar in a way that chemicals are not taken into account so heavily by a company. And later on, it shows up in some form. In this case, that was hidden in the ocean for many years. But in your case, you had to actually bring it up. Was it just you or was it you and many others who had to bring up the issue of PFOA? Well, really, the whole, the whole issue started with Wilbur Tennant, you know, a farmer out in West Virginia who was convinced there was something in the water that his cows were drinking that was making them sick, giving them blackened teeth, giving them tumors. It wasn't just the cows. It was the wildlife that was dropping dead in the air. And he thought he himself and his family were becoming sick. So he really kind of started... Um, you know, the, 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 the investigation, so to speak. And then I helped him try to figure out what was going on, which led to people in the community um, also getting involved and um, really trying to help educate regulators, the scientific community and the public about what we were seeing here. Um, so it really took the efforts of a lot of people, you know, to, to get this story out and to get information out to the public to the scientists to the regulators you know that this problem existed and you know what we needed to do about it it's a long process um and you know those of you who've either read the book or if you've seen the movie dark waters or the documentary the devil we know which kind of you know gives you the overview of the story you see how long it took 
you know, to get this information out. Information which uh, unfortunately was covered up and withheld for, for many, many years. Two points come to mind as you're describing that. One is, I'll leave that one for later about the challenges, but the second one that comes to mind is that isn't it interesting that there's the details at the moment and not so many people jump to find out information about what's going on. And then let's say when there's a book, there's a different category of people that like to read books and then take in the information through there. And then much more popularly is a film like Dark Waters where a lot of people take it in and they like the visual and then they're able to connect with the story in that way. Have you seen a different progression of people that uh, you've connected with based on what you put out? Yeah, you know, it's incredibly fortunate to be able to have folks uh, like those at Participant Media, Mark Ruffalo, that, uh, you know, were able to, 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 to actually find a way to bring the story out, you know, to the public through a feature film, or the people at Atlas Films who did the documentary, The Devil We Know. Yeah, as, you, as, you know as you just said, you know, it, it, people consume information uh, in many different ways, and, um, you know, it's difficult through just getting information out in a court proceeding, you know, fi making filings in a court record to really uh, reach people to, to help them understand, you know, why something that seems like a really complicated legal case or a really complicated uh, mix of scientific issues in law, how it really impacts them, you know, and, and why this is an issue that really is, a, is something that we all ought to be paying attention to. So it was incredibly um, fortunate, you know, that the folks that were um, involved with the film, with the documentary, with the book, you know, were able to see the value in finding new and additional ways uh, to bring that story out um, into the widest, to the widest group we could um, to help spread information about, you know, what in essence is a massive public health threat that went unnoticed for, for decades. This makes sense different outlets of different forms. Speaking of this massive threat, what were some of the key challenges that come to mind from the past two decades, or maybe probably early on, usually it's more early on, uh, people you had to, I guess, battle against, or what kinds of difficulties show up? Because when you're trying to bring up something, there's always a pushback of some form. Excuse me. Yeah, and that's what I really try to, to, to explain a little more detail in the book, Exposure, is just, you know, this was, this was much more than just a legal case where we had to be, you know, worrying about things that we were filing in court and handling the court procedures. You know, this, this was a, a, an issue that involved ongoing science. You know, papers were being published. Um, science was being manipulated. Uh, the media was being misled and manipulated. Regulators were being misled. So we really had to, to work on a number of levels, not just through the legal system, but through the regulatory system, through, through the, the legislative process, uh, the scientific process, you know, to try to, to, to get this information out and to get through all of the roadblocks, you know, that uh, typically are there uh, to prevent stories like this from ever making it to the public. How involved were you with scientists along the way? Was it a constant feedback loop between you and research that was being done, or did you reach out to them? What was that like? Uh, we we first start getting involved with different scientific experts and, and advisors early on. Um, you know, trying to understand. Initially, when Mr. Tennant came to us in 1998, 
you know, with concerns about these cows. Uh, started consulting with scientists then to try to understand what what was really going on here. You know, what what were we seeing in this white foam? What was in the water? Uh, and then to understand the documents that we were getting when we started getting documents from the company that was, you know, handling this material to try to really understand what we were seeing in these documents that went back decades. So it was it was a constant process involving, you know, it's talking with, consulting with different experts in different fields for many years, particularly when you're dealing with a company on the other side that is, um, you know, it, it views itself as a science company. Um, and, you know, has some of the best scientists in the world. You really have to understand uh, the language that's being spoken in that, in that regard. Did they, on their end, bring up science that favored what they were trying to say about the chemical? Yeah, absolutely. And again, as we talk about in, in, in the book, Exposure, you know, just the, the, the way in which the science was manipulated over the years through decades, uh, including, you know, not necessarily publishing data that was harmful to the company or only publishing data that supported uh, a certain argument um, and really trying to not only uncover that, but to, to help to help those understand those in the regulatory world, in the scientific world, to help them see what was actually happening and what had been going on for decades. It was a very d difficult and uh, time-consuming process that took a number of years. Was more of the goal to penalize DuPont for what they had done or to provide alternatives for how they did their processes? What was the main idea? From your end, well, you know, really, the, the one of the primary objectives was to to get information out to the public about this public health threat. You know, once we'd uncovered the fact that there was this chemical that was not only you know in the water that these cows were drinking in this family, you know, that was drinking, but in the water of the entire community, um, at levels above those that scientists were saying was appropriate. Uh, and then to find out that the chemical wasn't just in the water in that community, but was likely in drinking water all over the country and all over the planet. Um, it really, the, one of the primary objectives was to get information out and to make sure public health threats were addressed, that exposures were stopped, that appropriate science and studies um, were done, and that people who were harmed um, you know, got appropriate relief for being harmed. Did you find that while you were examining this chemical, did you notice research or find out information about other chemicals over time that you're like, wait a minute, these are also in the water supply or elsewhere? Did anything come up like that? Well, I think um, you know, this, this was really an eye-opening uh, experience for me because it really showed that you know, this is not the only chemical like this out there that was developed decades before the US EPA even came into existence, decades before some of our first laws in the, uh, at the federal level started coming out, regulating new chemicals coming out onto the, onto the market. You know, this was just an example of uh, you know, the, the types of chemicals that were likely out there 
that had gone kind of under the radar um, of the regulators and the scientific world and the public for, for decades because they'd already been out, uh, being used for decades before these laws came into place. So, um, you know, now we know there are tens of thousands of chemicals that predate these laws that are out there being used. Now, hopefully, there aren't as many that share the characteristics of these chemicals being completely man-made, you know, not existing on the planet prior to, to, to man creating them, being toxic, being persistent, and being bioaccumulative. You know, that's really the, the concern is this, this combination of toxicity and persistence and, and the ability to stay in us and build up over time. Fortunately, there aren't a lot of chemicals that have those, um, those characteristics. I noticed that it's a little bit disturbing. The man-made part is something that makes you think it's not natural to the earth. We altered it and we didn't think it through kind of thing. And then it bioaccumulates. So then it's just in the body and doesn't depart. It's a little disturbing in that, in that way. What are some of the recent laws in the past five years, 10 years that make putting out chemicals like this not as likely, or is that the case? Excuse me. Well, um, this, this, this situation with PFOA and the PFOS chemicals was actually used as an example um, a few years back to advocate for trying to change and improve our laws here in the United States for regulating chemicals. And in fact, in 2016, one of those federal laws called the Toxic Substances Control Act was amended you know, to try to address issues like this and try to require more testing, more studies to be done before chemicals are brought out onto the market. Um, and it's, there's really been an, an, an increasing amount of debate and discussion over the last, uh, particularly the last year or two, particularly as the film Dark Waters has come out. Um, and when people are starting to realize you know, that, that we have some gaps in the way in which our laws regulate um, chemicals like this. Um, and, you know, maybe we ought to be looking at uh, ways to address that and to fix that problem. Is there anything, sometimes in life, it's nice when you see a video of yourself or like you create a big journal about your own thoughts and then you start to see yourself more clearly. When you saw the film or after it was done, seeing as a whole package, was there anything you saw more clearly than when you were in the battle of sorts? Excuse me, sorry for, for continuing to cough. Um, you know, I think they did a terrific job with the film. Um, you know, it's, that was a, a story spanning over 20 years uh, that, you know, they were able to really condense and present in two hours um, in a way that really, um, you know, showed people what it was like, not just for me and not just for my family, which you see in the film, but for the people that really were, were suffering through the direct impacts of this in that community, people like the tenants, people like the Kigers who you see in the film and the documentary, you know, that were uh, having to live in that town while all of this was happening and, and people were concerned, you know, about their jobs and what was transpiring. Um, you know, I think they did a terrific job in, in really conveying the impact that something like this has on real people. And I'm hoping, you know, when people have had a chance to see the film or the documentary or even, even reading the book, you know, that hopefully they'll come away realizing, you know, this isn't just a, a scientific legal 
problem and issue. I mean, this impacts real people every day all over. Um, so I think they did a tremendous job in conveying that point. Mm -hmm. One thing that came to mind also is DuPont was involved with this issue, but did you find any other companies that were connected with DuPont along the way that depended on them in some form or they also would be connected? Yeah, you know, there are a number of companies. Um, obviously, the 3M company was one of the ones that actually first developed a lot of these chemicals back around the, the era of World War II and continue to this day. Um, and there are other companies that have also manufactured some of these chemicals. And then, yeah, there are a lot of companies that were customers of, of these companies that use these chemicals in making all kinds of products. You know, these PFOS chemicals, they're not just in Teflon. You know, what you see in the film and what we talk about in the book, in the documentary, really focused on this plant in West Virginia where the Teflon-related materials were made. But these, this class of chemicals has been used in an incredible variety of consumer products um, um, all over the world. Things like stain-resistant, waterproof clothing and carpeting, fast food wrappers and packaging, uh, firefighting foams. They're just a wide variety of different impacts all over our economy. Um, you know, because this stuff's been used for 70 years. Um, and because of that, you know, you sit back and you look at these man-made chemicals are now being found in the blood of, of, of creatures all over the planet, polar bears, you know, Arctic ice, and in humans all over the planet. It's an interesting thing because it makes me think of even that uh, DDT article I read just a few days ago, it connected and said it was around World War II that they just dumped those. It makes me think that the times where there's a lot going on or a big war and everybody's distracted is the times when so much like damaging items can be done because people are distracted. And then when things calm down, suddenly you can look at things. So it makes you think that when there's companies taking, um, not risks, but uh, putting out material that's not the safest or most checked, that's when you most need people like an environmental attorney or groups to check on them or else every time there's a down in society, there's going to be a lot of damaging material put out with nobody keeping track. Is that fair to say? Well, I think, um, you know, it, it, if anything, this, this story definitely shows the, the value of our legal system and having a system like we have here in the United States that allows people who have um, discovered something like this, you know, a problem that has gone unnoticed for decades to be able to, to go into court and, and, and require that something be done, even if our laws and our regulations uh, really haven't caught up yet with, with that, um, you know, something that may have gone on for decades. Um, uh, at least we have the legal system that allows us to come in into court and actually get those things addressed and fixed. And, you know, we're fortunate in that regard. It's not necessarily the case everywhere across the world. Mm -hmm. It makes me think of like when, when business also has downtimes, then that's the most important time for business attorneys to check on new deals that are made because uh, when people are distracted or focused elsewhere, there's the most opportunity for grabbing more without taking into account all the rules. One thing that came to mind is, uh, did you have a good relationship with the attorneys of DuPont or is it 
like antagonistic or is it more formal and there's not any direct relationship? How is that? Well, I mean, this was a, a this was litigation. Um, uh, and, you know, I think I try to describe those interactions in the book, exposure. You see some of that in the films as well. Um, you know, the, the attorneys for DuPont were representing their client um, and trying to do what they could to, to represent that client's interests. Um, I was representing our clients. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a formal process that you follow. Um, that kind of dictates the rules of, of how the lawyers interact with each other. Um, um, and, you know, I, I think you see that pretty well described in the book and the films. Mm-hmm. If you had to categorize the, not categorize, but how would you describe the importance of a company like uh, DuPont being transparent about everything they're putting out on a regular basis? <laughs> well, I think it's incredibly important for, for a company like that to, to, to be transparent about what um, chemicals, particularly those that are presenting risks and threat of harm to people, uh, to let them know uh, whether they're being exposed to them. Um, and particularly if there's information suggesting a real significant risk of harm, uh, that people be alerted to that. Um, and in fact, that's in this case, um, one of the bases upon which the EPA ended up suing DuPont was their claim the, you know, that DuPont had not uh, alerted um, folks about a significant threat uh, from this chemical. So um, um, hopefully there are lessons to be learned from this story. I think a lot of companies are picking up on this, you know, that you need to be transparent um, about potential threats like this to public health um, and take actions uh, to try to minimize uh, those threats and at least make people aware. You know, none of us really um, even were aware that we were being exposed to these chemicals, these PFOS chemicals. We didn't have a choice to avoid being exposed. Didn't even know these were in the products uh, that we were purchasing. Um, and it's still, to this day, very difficult to get information about what products were these chemicals used in, you know, which companies are still using them, who's moved away from them. Uh, so there are efforts underway uh, worldwide right now to try to provide resources for folks, um, particularly online, um, you know, uh, to, to, to help people understand where these product, where these chemicals were used, what products, and who's who's using them, who's moving away from them, and really to demand more transparency on those those issues. Right. One thing that that makes me think of is a lot of products, like let's say foods, they have to label everything that is in them. But many laundry detergents, before the current movement of describing all the ingredients or the elements that make them up. There would be like you would get a laundry detergent and it, there's no ingredient listing. What is the differentiator in laws that where some products have to list every single item in them and some do not have to? Well, um, it's complex. It's incredibly complex. The 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 way in which our laws interact on on what needs to be disclosed and what doesn't. And again, I try to to get into this a little more in the book, but you know, it's it's. Particularly um, exposure, you know, those of us who are exposed to things 
through the environment versus you know food or you know there are certain agencies that control uh, like the FDA you know that deals with things and foods um, and you know the it's just it's it's an incredibly complex system um, and unfortunately there are situations like this where uh, certain types of chemicals sort of um, fall outside of those of, of those um, systems and um, uh, you know simply weren't regulated um, and you know now we're all playing sort of catch up to try to find out exactly where were we exposed you know how were we exposed was it in food was it in, was it in just through the environment through our drinking water um, and who should be regulating those things um, all all incredibly important issues mm -hmm. those are important issues, important issues. what what direction would you like things to go in in the upcoming years is there any results you're looking at beyond what has already happened well i'm hoping that um, we develop a lot more information and are able to continue to pursue the science um, to, to help people understand exactly what the nature and extent of this health threat is from these chemicals um, you know how we can minimize our exposures not only to prevent additional exposures, but also what are we going to do as far as getting rid of what's already out there? You know, these chemicals, unfortunately, have a tendency to stay in our environment. You know, that's why I mentioned earlier, you've heard them referred to as forever chemicals, because they have this tendency not to break down naturally in the environment. So, you know, you've got 70 years of these chemicals being in use, and most of what was already emitted is still out there. So one of the major issues, <coughs> excuse me, that we'll be confronting as the years go on is, what do we do about what's already out there? How do we address cleanup? How do we uh, make sure that there isn't continuing contamination of our water from these chemicals staying in the soil and leaking down constantly? You know, what do we do about the stuff in our blood? You know, in the fact that our children are born with these chemicals in our blood. Um, yeah, just incredibly um, important, but incredibly complex uh, issues that, um, you know, it, at, at least I think it's incredibly encouraging to see these things finally being discussed and to see these issues finally um, being discussed, not only here in the United States, but worldwide. Yeah, with it's their topics of discussion before the EU, before the UN, um, in various different international contexts as well. And that's incredibly encouraging because uh, just a few years ago, nobody was talking about this. Nobody even understood this existed. So um, I think that's a, an incredibly positive step forward. I find much value in that point. When nobody's talking about it, that's the real opportunity in almost any category where you see it, but not that many people see it. You have to be the pioneer. There's a risk to it, but there's a high value to it. And much of the time, it's just you and a few people that see it. And you don't want to regret not reaching for something early on. One thing I liked is connected with farmers, which is where it would show up environmentally. They would deal directly with the environment. I've had uh, past guests on that were about organic food or nutritionist or one of the researches like farms and farming in Washington state that that makes sense that it would be connected directly to that environmentally how do you feel about uh, other items that are also out there like the plastics in the ocean or in the pacific garbage patch is there other environment 
<coughs> environment. I have coughed as well. Is there other environmental elements that you have looked at or have ideas about? Well, I think you know, the, the PFAS chemical contamination uh, issue is obviously one of, I think, you know, uh, real significant importance and something we really ought to be focusing on. But it's just one of many uh, environmental issues, you know, that, um, that I think are unfortunately uh, just starting to really, um, um, people are st starting to just finally become aware of, or at least finally starting to take notice of. You know things like you've already mentioned. You know the the plastics in the in the ocean. Uh, uh, different. There there's so many different environmental issues, and I think in all of those cases, um, what becomes sort of the, the the turning point, I think, is information and knowledge becoming available and being available to the public and to the the scientists and to the regulators, um, and that's really the key is making sure. If there's information out there about a threat to the environment or to the public, that we find ways to get that information out. Um, and um, I think again, this is this is a common theme that that goes far beyond just PFAS chemicals. Mm -hmm. This is a nice message about getting information out there. I've always valued people who are putting out information because it's a very small group of people that say that much or even seek to condense it into a form that is able to be taken in. So I always applaud that. What are, what kinds of information, this is a more separate, but what kinds of information do you like to take in? Do you like to read certain categories of books or do you look through documentaries? How do you like to take in information? Oh, pretty much all of that. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, um, the, the, the amount of information that is available out there um, obviously is increasing exponentially every day. Um, and unfortunately, it just becomes much more difficult to really be able to, to filter and to focus on, you know, where is the important information and, you know, what are the, uh, the sources that I really want to be looking at and relying upon. Um, because the way in which information's being uh, conveyed has changed dramatically, as we all know, in the last decades or so, particularly with the rise of the internet and social media and handheld devices and, and all of that. So, um, you know, finding a way to kind of cut through the noise, so to speak, and make sure that important information, you know, finds its way out is, 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 is increasingly difficult. Mm -hmm. I like to take in a lot through reading. I'm not as visual, but I've noticed visual is super popular on the internet because people like the imagery, I guess. What uh, would you, would you have any recommendations of any uh, legal individuals or people you look to as a good example, either legally or as people or scientists? Do you have any people that come to mind? <coughs> Excuse me. Um, on, on, on a particular issue, on PFAS or? Well, not as much on PFAS, but people that their example of how they perform legally or whether they might be scientists and you like the way they do their research or what they have presented. Is there any people that come to mind? I always like to check. <laughs> Well, you know, I think that's there's there's so many folks I think that fit in that category. Um, it, at least in the 
the the world I've been dealing with in the PFAS chemical world, you know, you've got incredibly talented people at our federal agencies, at the state agencies, uh, and independent, you know, environmental groups at international organizations as well. Um, and, and folks within some of the companies, you know, that are doing this, this research, um, you know, what's important is getting the information, uh, getting the science done, and then getting that information out in a way that, that people can really critically analyze it, understand it, and actually, you know, be able to, to make some use of it. Um, and one of the things, you know, that I've been trying to do is make sure that there, there aren't continuing efforts to, to cover up or withhold that kind of information. But as, as you mentioned before, you know, try to increase the transparency and, and increase ways in which we can we can get the information out and available to folks. Um, so there's just so many people that are doing tremendous jobs at that right now. Um, but it's, it's hard. It's, it's difficult, um, particularly as funding gets cut, you know, for our, for our agencies at the federal and state level. Um, there's a lot of scientific work uh, that needs to be done. Um, and unfortunately, um, you know, the taxpayers, the states, the federal agencies, the, the community members shouldn't be the ones having to pay for this, you know, particularly when you're dealing with environmental contamination like this, uh, where you knew if you put these chemicals out there, people would be exposed. It would get and stay in our environment. Uh, you know, that, that frankly, the companies that did that ought to be uh, paying for that kind of um, that kind of work, not not the taxpayers. So, but that's that's an ongoing uh, battle that's been that's been going on now for quite some time. Hmm. I noticed a theme about getting the right information out there and signal versus noise, and keeping the signal clean, which is what a few I follow a few people who are uh, writers, and they like to be very concise in the main point because there's so much data out there that it's up to us to be very careful of what we're taking in and that it's worthwhile. That's a clear message for 2020. I would like to thank you for having been on this epi episode of the show and letting everybody know more about exposure, dark waters, and the fight that you have been committed to for decades now. Well, thanks so much. And thank you for what you're doing to help um, continue that discussion and awareness. I appreciate it. Wonderful. And we are out.